be seated, and if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter ten is where we will be this morning. Second Chronicles, chapter ten. Now, before we get into the message, I just wanted to tell you, sincere, give you, tell you, I am sincerely, my wife and I are sincerely thankful for the gift that you gave our family last week. It has been. Well, it was an immediate encouragement, and it is like a, it's a it's a well needed shot of WD forty into the gears of our budget to let things move forward as we're hoping to with taking care of a house and all sorts of other things. So it really, uh, you know, I used to go get these treatments in my knees because I have really bad knees, and they would shoot your knees full of lubricant, and then you're just like, ooh, you know, you're kind of like the Tin Man suddenly, like, hey, uh, thank you so much for giving us that gift, which is just a way of like making, easing our burdens a little bit, and I really, truly appreciate it. So Second Chronicles 10, I'm going to explain why we're in Second Chronicles. Kind of surprise, we're in Second Chronicles. Uh, might have taken you a minute to find that book because it's maybe, maybe a little dusty <laughs> in that section of your Bible. Uh, this text, I think, has got two things for us this morning. The first one is there's a lot of introduce information about the seeking of counsel. There's a lot of information in this text about seeking advice. And there's a lot of information in this text about giving advice, for that matter. And so that's the first thing that we'll look at, is the seeking of counsel. And the second thing we'll see is the supremacy of Christ. So we just have really two points and a bunch of subpoints in between those two things. So let me give you a quick overview of what's happening during the time of this particular text so you've got the kings of Israel, you've got Saul, and then David, and then David's son Solomon, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam, and that's who we find in this particular passage. And the thing to think about Israel during this particular time is that just by the way God had brought the monarchy into Israel, or allowed the monarchy to be brought into Israel, um, there were really beginning to be sort of lines drawn between two of my favorite words, in the, in the dictionary, there, there's probably a, a political fissure emerging that you could describe as establishmentarianism and disestablishmentarianism, one of the longest words in the dictionary. Um, that's probably the way to see this text. You've got these two families, these two tribes, Benjamin from Saul, from when Saul came, and Judah, uh, the, the family tribe of David and Solomon and now Rehoboam, and these two families are sort of becoming the establishment in Israel. They are the ones with the familial connections to the monarchy. So there's a government in Israel, and this is becoming a large government, which I'll explain why in a minute. So you've got these two tribes that are sort of the establishment. And then the rest of the tribes, though with some leader like David, who was universally, nearly universally popular, uh, everybody could kind of agree. Without a really strong leader, these these people who don't have family blood attached to the establishment, to the monarchy, uh, they're kind of like, what's this all about? Why, why, why are we paying significant taxes? Why are we being called to come into the city to do the king's bidding? We don't have any connection to these royal family lines. And that's sort of the background of what's happening here. Now, one more piece. Why was the government getting bigger? 
Why had the government of Israel gotten bigger? And by bigger, I mean more burdensome, because that's a key feature of this text. Well, the basic idea that commentators, when they examine this question, decide that, you know, Solomon's opulent lifestyle was increasing the cost of government exponentially. So um, think of how many wives he had and how many concubines. Insert your favorite, you know, Rodney Dangerfield joke, you know, like, uh, you know, having that number of people to maintain was increasing the expense of the government at large. Matthew Henry writes it this way. It is probable that it was when Solomon had declined from God and his duty that his wisdom failed him. And God left him to himself to act in this impolite manner. Even Solomon's treasures were exhausted by his love of women. And probably it was to maintain them and their pride, luxury, and idolatry that he burdened his subjects. So that's where we are in this passage. Solomon has continued throughout his lifetime to increase not only the tax burden, but the burden of forced labor on these folks in the north. And when Solomon dies, the folks in the north see an opportunity. Here's a a young king named Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And they see this as an opportunity to approach him and to ask him, please reduce the burden that your father had placed on us. And that's what we see in our text in 2 Chronicles 10.4. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Now, how does Rehoboam respond? Well, initially, he responds quite wisely. He responds to their request by asking that he give, they give him three days. Well, this is more of a command. He is king after all. He says in verse 5, come to me again in three days. So the people went away. And then in verse 6, we see what Rehoboam was going to do with this time. Then, verse 6, King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? I mean, really, everything's going really well in this passage, except for the northerners being, you know, a bit of a anti, uh, anti-establishmentarianisms. Uh, there, this is all good. Rehoboam is seeking counsel. So in verse 7, after he goes to the older men and says, how would you advise me? The old men give this counsel in verse 7. The old men who had stood before Solomon said to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So that's the counsel of the older men the older men who had served Solomon as his advisors. But now we see in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us what Rehoboam did with that counsel. He abandoned it. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put upon us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, 
my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Total euphemism, total genitalia euphemism, just so you know. There's lots of male ego going on in this particular passage. He says, go tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplines you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So in the end, Rehoboam rejects the counsel of the older men, takes up the counsel of his peers. The older men had counseled a course of mercy. The younger men had counseled a course of power. We'll talk more about this in a minute. And Rehoboam went with the younger men's counsel. He said to the people of the north, we'll just read in verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, he he told them what the young people told him, and this is how they respond. Uh, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was taskmaster over forced labor, and the people of Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So, verse 19, Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So what does this this text have to teach us? It teaches us about the wisdom of seeking counsel and advice, but also it teaches us to distinguish between seeking counsel and advice and shopping for counsel that agrees with what we want to hear. So that's a big distinction. Seeking counsel and shopping for agreement, and we'll cover that more in a minute. The first point is simply that Rehoboam, his dad, Solomon, wrote the book of Proverbs. He understood, hey, I should seek counsel. He he did this in wisdom. Uh, There may have been other motivations, like the ability to blame others if it didn't go well. But he did do what he was supposed to do. And I just want to cover some of the verses in the book of Proverbs that tell us how wise it is to seek counsel. Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all judgment. People begin to peel off from the normal company that they keep or the normal people that they would go to for counsel and they suddenly are not around as much anymore and they're not seeking counsel. What's going on? They want to break out against all sound judgment. Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 24, 6, for by by wise guidance, you can wage your war in abundance of counselors. There is victory. So this action of going to These men, whether they were young or old, was itself a good idea. We should begin to see, we should see that seeking counsel is a huge means of grace 
And God has given us an incredible opportunity by surrounding us with people who know him, who know his word, and who love us. We are immeasurably wealthy because of that. You know, speaking of wealth, the whole world's undergone just absolute transformation since the Industrial Revolution. And it's becoming an increasingly more complex space for just the average person sitting in this room right now to understand and navigate. And one of the reasons that we've been able to produce so much wealth, and I mean that in a positive way, is because we've begun to outsource pieces of production, pieces of production in our own lives to others. Essentially, we're networking ourselves and have been networking ourselves way before the Internet, where we depend on others and their knowledge and their specialty to help us with this slice or that slice of our particular lives. But this, this is just an indicator, God's general revelation indicator, that generally speaking, when we work together, things can become quite great. They can become quite evil too, but they can become, there's, there's huge benefit to it, at least conceptually. And then, of course, there's this other issue that I, I feel like no one ever talks about, and that is your life is hundreds of times more complex than the average person who lived in Bible times. You, as an individual, have so much more information to manage and so many more, so many pieces of life to navigate. It's important to understand how complex your life actually is. Because once you understand that, you'll begin to do what kings have always done. And that's kind of what you are. You are managing an incredible amount of resources and trying to process an incredible amount of information. And you're trying to do this over the long haul in a way that glorifies the Lord. You need counsel. We all do. We all need to be aggressively seeking godly counsel. So that's good. We see that in the text. We're like, good job, Rehoboam. Maybe you're going to be a good king. But then we find that once he turns to the older men and gets their advice, he abandons it and goes to the younger men instead. Now here's another thing to think about when it comes to counsel seeking. You're responsible for who you go to. You're not just responsible for going and getting counsel, you're also responsible for being wise in who you choose. Why did Rehoboam go to the people that he went to? Why did he abandon the counsel of the older men and go to the counsel of the younger men? Well, I think there's three possibilities that are at least relevant to us in our life. And the first one I will call the empathy bias. One possibility is that Rehoboam, like many of us, have a bias toward shared experience. So this is where we discount the opinions of others because they can't possibly know what it's like to be me, which is hogwash. And also not, not even close to the most relevant issue when seeking counsel. Um, it would be better to go to someone who doesn't know what it's like to be you, who is wise, than to go to someone who does know what it's like to be you and is foolish. Like, that's obvious. So one of the possibilities for Rehoboam going, forsaking the counsel of the older people and going to the counsel of the younger people was he had this sense of, hey, if you don't really know life through my eyes, like how could you offer counsel? Of 
First, knowing life through his eyes was not relevant at all in this particular situation. It didn't help him at all. Wouldn't have helped him at all. If you're dealing with this sort of sense that uh, you can't receive counsel from someone because they haven't gone through your shared experience, um, first of all, welcome to postmodernism. I hope you enjoy it. Um, that's an entirely new way of thinking about the world. It shows that you've been educated by the world more than you realize. Uh, because up until this point, we've always been concerned about what's true. And now we're concerned about what's our truth, right? So that's weird. But if you're thinking this way, I want you to remember two things. One, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, no temptation has seized, no temptation has seized us, but such that is common to man. And this is just the idea that, you know, we all deal with the same stuff. It just has different labels. It has different, it has different album covers, but it's all the same music. So the problems that you're going through now, it's just a different genre that someone else already has in their library. They've already heard the tune. And the truth is, is that if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking so woodenly as to need everybody's problems to look exactly like yours, that's just a intellectual laziness. You can be able to, I don't know how you read the Bible, for instance, because like, none of these people have anything to do with you, right? So, so you need to be able to just like, like, think about things in a broad enough principle where it's like, yeah, yeah, he lived 2,000 years ago, but basically it's the same deal that I'm going through. Okay, so that could be one reason why he's going that way. The other one might be something called modernity bias. And someone as intellectually rigorous as C.S. Lewis really struggled with this one before his conversion. As you probably know, as I talk about it at least a few times a year, Lewis really had two conversions. He had a conversion from atheism into theism, and then he had a second conversion from theism into believing that Jesus was God. And what was holding him back in that second conversion was he just thought, how can people that were alive 2,000 years ago be right about anything? And his, <laughs> his, friends, his, friends, uh, uh, his friends were some really hefty philosophers, and they, they told him, you're, what you're doing right now is chronological snobbery. The oldness of a truth does not change its truthiness, right? So chronological snobbery is essentially the idea that people who are older than you just don't know what they're talking about. And so maybe that was what Rehoboam was thinking. I don't know. I think the third possibility is just that he was in confirmation bias. So we have... Empathy bias, modernity bias, and confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is just, let me look for things that validate what I already think. I think that's probably what the text is trying to tell us. Because it says so clearly that he kind of forcefully abandoned the counsel of the older, as if he kind of already had some kind of agenda. My guess is, is out of the three, it's probably this. Just good old-fashioned confirmation bias or we look for things that tell us what we want to hear or what we already believe. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So here's real truth, guys. We live in a world where we can find an expert to endorse any appetite or perspective that we have on any single day of the week. If we want to do something, we're a Google search away from finding someone with letters behind their name telling us that we should do that thing. 
So this, this confirmation bias thing is actually super relevant for us because we have more access to counsel than anybody in the history of the world, and that's a good thing, but only if our hearts are good. Having all the counsel and all the wisdom available to us in the world is just going to go the way of our own stubborn, foolish darkness if we ourselves aren't really sincerely asking, God, what do you want? Not, what do I want and how can I find someone who's written a book that tells me what I want is right and that everybody else is the problem? So, for whatever reason, probably this one, Rehoboam, please abandons the counsel of the older and goes to the counsel of the younger. I'm a little bit ahead of my time, so I just want to cover one thing really quickly, just off notes that comes up, and it's a, I think it's a really important question. The way this text presents itself, you kind of wonder, is the Bible trying to tell me here that older people know better than younger people? Right? I mean, that's kind of how that feels. And I really did put some thought into that. I just didn't think I'd have time to talk about it. But I'll just tell you what I've found just very quickly, a few sentences. I think the answer to that question, so the question would be, do older people know better than younger people? I think the answer to that question is, yes, but. I think that's how the Bible answers that question. I think it's sort of like, are you thirsty? Um, there's a lake, but that's not all the information <laughs> you need to know, right? Like, I think telling you, do you need advice? There's an old person, but, like, that's a good first thought, but that's not the only thought. Basically, for every time I could show you a text that says older people are good sources of wisdom, you just find tons of qualifiers that tell you, yeah, most of the time. And I really think that one thing that I would advise you that I, I've had to grow up in, if you're younger and you're learning to seek counsel and you are going to older people, is you need to understand that they're not wiser because, they got, because they're just wiser. They're wiser because they have more wounds. That's, that's really all you're doing. Um, who's the guy? Charlie Munger is uh, Berkshire Hathaway CEO, and he gave a speech years ago, back in the 80s, called How to Live a Miserable Life. And one of the points in his speech on how to live a miserable life is, assume that all the learning you have to do must come from your own experience. And essentially the point was, there are lots of people who have already tried what you want to try, and you should probably just go to them downstream and ask them how it worked out. The extent that older people are wiser, it's because they have more wounds, and you're just using their wounds to avoid some of your own. And honestly, you get to a certain age, and you're super happy if that helps someone else, because you kind of feel dumb for having messed up yourself. This also gives you a quick clue as to like what does an older person's wisdom look like. It has to be humility there. But... That humility doesn't always have to be verbalized. And this is something real important as it relates to hypocrisy. You won't necessarily find every older person just openly saying, I messed up here. But if they are giving you counsel that appears to move in a direction different than the direction they moved in, that's what they're doing. And that's what's happening in our text. Think about it. Rehoboam goes to the older men who reigned or who advised Solomon to raise the taxes. 
Like, they were part of the establishment. They were part of the way this thing had developed. And he goes to these older men and says, what should I do? And they're like, lower the taxes. They didn't say, we screwed up. We got a little big for our britches. We have too many wives. But they kind of did, right? They kind of did. So when you're seeking counsel from an older person, look for wounds, look for humility. But that humility doesn't always uh, express itself in massive emotional regret. Sometimes they'll just tell you to not do what they did, and they might not even say it that way, and you're kind of like, well, you're just being a hypocrite. It's like, no, they're just being guarded because they don't know if they can trust you, but they're trying to give you good advice. So anyway, that's a little excursus into are older people wiser. I think the answer is that's the right place to start thinking, but you have to, you have to be careful. You have to be thoughtful. Um, if you want to read more about this, uh, Job chapter 32, I believe it is, where, where Elihu is the youngest of all the people in that whole book, and he doesn't say anything because he thinks all the older people should be wise. And then finally, at the end of Job, Elihu's like, you guys aren't wise. I have to say something. And it's really his speech that introduces the appearance of God. So I, I bring up all these issues about counsel and advice, in part because you've probably heard us talking uh, fairly often over the last few months about this group of people that we've established called the advisory deacons. And the basic idea is, is that we, as wisdom lovers, value advice so much that we do, we are doing what people have done for generations, for, for centuries, and that is Advice is so important, you want to create a stockpile of it in advance. You want to basically put a, a thing over here that's like, these are advice people, and I will go to them when I need counsel. So when we say advisory deacons, it's just important to think about what, what the word deacon is. And the word deacon is just the word servant. So really what we have done is we've created a body within our church of advice servants. That's what they exist to do. They exist to serve me and the whole church in being a place you can turn for counsel. It's not the only place to turn. It's not a place you have to turn. But we are all about looking at very old things that we've overlooked these days that maybe we need to reconsider. And one of them is it was just kind of a common part of a society, and that's what we're attempting to be, a society, it was just a common part of a society to say, to give a group of people name tags that said counselor or advice giver, and then everybody in town would know, Here's, there's the advice givers. And so that's what that body really is about. And it may seem initially, and I think this was kind of, I, don't, I think if you thought this, it, I would agree with you probably, initially, well, this is a group of deacons who give advice and counsel to the pastor. But really, if you think about it, it's really meant to run in both directions. It's like you should be able to say, if these guys, if, 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 the, if my pastor goes to these guys for advice and counsel, then I can too. And so what I wanted, one of the things I'm responsible for with this formation of this group is I'm responsible to equip the saints for the work of their ministry. And the work of this ministry is advice giving. And so I want to delve into this passage a little bit deeper and say, how do we give good advice? And this is mostly for the advisory deacons, but it's also for all of you because, Lord willing, people will turn to you and ask you for advice. In fact, we often wonder, like, what does it look like to share the gospel these days? 
did you know that historically, going all the way back to someone like Joseph or Daniel, historically God has placed people in societies that he wishes to redeem or be kind to. He just places wise people there. And what if you are just the wise person in your workplace? What if that's the way you authenticate the wisdom of the gospel? It's just being a reliable, uh, secure source of advice to those around you. I bet you, if you prayed for that, God would let that take place in your workplace. So what does it look like to be a good advisor? Let me take you through a handful of things and we'll wrap up. The first thing, it took me probably 10 years of ministry to realize this one. It's the dumbest of all of them, but it's the most important too. The first idea of advice giving is assume your advice will be taken. This is, to me, revolutionary. Because it is so easy to think that you just have freedom to share opinions in which you don't have high degrees of certainty. When someone's coming to you for advice, you should assume they're going to do what you suggest and then you are on the hook, at least partly, for the outcome of that thing. Don't spout off. James 3.1 says... Not many of you should become teachers. Same idea as counselors here. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he who teaches will be judged with greater strictness. So the first advice I would give to advice givers, assume what you say next will be done. And you're on the hook for it. Now, do you think maybe you'd like to ask some more questions before you give your advice? Which is the second point. Ask a lot of questions. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. So number one, when you give advice, assume the person's actually going to do it. Number two, ask a lot of questions so that you can make sure you understand something before you give your opinion. Number three, abandon your ego. One of the things that's really sweet about these older men is they had essentially contradicted their previous actions. They were the counsel they gave essentially saying, we screwed up. And that's the best kind of advice as I've already referenced. And number four, aim for peace. So assume your advice can be taken, ask a lot of questions, abandon your ego and aim for peace. Proverbs 28, 28 says, Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Imagine if Rehoboam had just remembered that. When he was filtering the advice of the young and the old men, if he had remembered Proverbs 20, 28 and realized, you know, if I would like to stay in power, I should probably be loving toward these people. But then in the very next verse, I think we see a warning for younger men. For younger advice givers. Let me not just say men. Younger advice givers. Look at Proverbs twenty twenty nine. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, one thing that's kind of cool about this proverb, it's kind of, it's telling us that we all change over time. That we don't have the same glory all the time. We don't have the same strength all the time. But I think this proverb can be used to point you to 
what happened in 2 Chronicles 10. So think about this with me again. The glory of the young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. I think what you can see in 2 Chronicles 10 is that the young men's counsel was all about strength. Can you see that? And that the old men's counsel was something more about caution, care, mercy, and so forth. This is the, probably the most important thing to think about if you're young and you're giving leadership in any area. Is your glory from the Lord is your strength. But that's not the glory that should be focused on when you give advice. You should focus on the glory of the cross, on the glory of Jesus, on the glory of God, not on the glory of strength. The way this often comes out when you're younger is just a bit of, a bit of harshness, lack of gentleness. And you can see, like, you, you've known me for five years now or whatever. Like, you can see, and you'll continue to see, like, this is, I'm an, I'm an in-between young and old man, you know. You could see this kind of thing going on in people that are my age, this pivot. But if you're young, you have to watch out for doing kind of what these young men in Second Chronicles did, and that was assume that, that the hard play is the right play. Uh, you'll just assume that because the glory of your generation, the glory of your stage is strength. But there's a warning for older men in the very next verse in Proverbs 20, uh, 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the in, innermost parts. As is routine for Proverbs, there's always qualifiers. There's always, this is true, but also this is true. And this is a warning for older men because older men have a tendency to be low conflict. And that is generally wise, but can do harm if you forget what Proverbs twenty thirty says, blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. If you really want to know that you're in serious trouble, have an older man get mad at you <laughs> and realize, okay, something's going on here. It's taking so much energy. He's shortening his life right now. These, this, this elevated heart rate, you know, like he's like, he's just a little bit away from a stroke. And if he's this upset, like I should probably pay attention. All of this advice to advice givers is summarized in James 3, 15 through 18. James 3 basically contrasts wisdom from above with wisdom from below. Wisdom that is earthly and wisdom that is heavenly. And you wish all Rehoboam had access to this. Verse 15 of James 3. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil, vile, every vile practice. And then he gets into the wisdom from above. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness and peace by those who make peace. So Rehoboam, uh, you know, he, he, the older men in this story were exhibiting wisdom from above. The list of quali qualities that James provides just almost perfectly map on to how the older men advised Rehoboam it is pure, peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And if Rehoboam had followed that, the kingdom would have stayed together. The younger men's advice was rooted in wisdom from below, earthly wisdom. And it was rooted in harshness and ambition. And it produced factions and disorder. So that's a fair amount about advice, about seeking it, about giving it. And that's the first point of the message. And the second one's very short. First point of the message is the seeking of counsel. And the second one is simply the supremacy of Christ. As is our practice, in whatever text we're in, we're always looking for how this makes much of Christ. And I would just tell you that in this particular case, we have some very interesting things to think about. Basically, Jesus is a better king than Rehoboam was. You see, Solomon and then Rehoboam increased the burden on the outsiders. I wonder how many of you have this sort of Bible keyword thing programmed into you just by reading the Bible over and over again. Because there was a keyword mentioned in our text today that might have made you think of Jesus. Rehoboam and Solomon increased the burden. The northerners complained, your, your father made our yoke heavy. Father made our yoke heavy. Rehoboam responds, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to it. Jesus, on the other hand, says to all people, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The northerners came. And they had no no real part of the royal line. They they didn't belong. They, They weren't related to it at all. And they said, your father has increased a heavy load on us. And there's a correlation with the gospel. And that's simply that due to our sin, we had a heavy burden to the father. To Jesus' father. And what Rehoboam does is what most people do in that situation. They add to it, add to the problem. But what Jesus did, the, the Bible tells us, is that he offered himself up as a sacrifice to, to make the burden lighter, to pay, to pay for the lightening of the burden of sin, to indeed release people from. Slavery to sin. The Bible says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin unless they've been set free by Christ. So you have these, uh, these mirrored images here between Rehoboam and Christ. And you even have this idea that because Rehoboam rebelled against his father's counselors, rebellion sprung up in the land. And that's what, that's what you get. But because Jesus submitted to his father's counselor, the spirit, submission sprung up into the land. And because Rehoboam made things heavy on the people, he split the kingdom. But because Jesus made things light on the king people, he's united all people under him. 
So that's the supremacy of Jesus. Now we move to thinking about communion, and I just want to ask you a question I feel like God wanted me to ask you. Where is your heart before God right now? Are you humble or proud? How have you responded to Jesus' counsel in Revelation 3? He says in Revelation 3, You say you're rich and have prospered and need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And then Jesus says, let me be your advisor. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And so today as you come for communion, you just say, come if you are a person who has received Jesus's counsel and he has saved you and you've given your life to him. Come and eat with him. Eat with the one who is the better king. And eat with the one who not only gives you his word, a tremendous source of counsel, but gives you brothers and sisters who also have the spirit and who love you and who can also be sources of advice and counsel. Let me pray for us and then you guys come. Lord, as we participate in the table today, may we just rejoice in this promise we read in Revelation 3 that if any man hears my voice and opens the door, you will come in and eat with him. And so today, Lord, we participate in this remembrance of your sacrifice for us. Lord, in fellowship with you. We ask, God, that through this moment, you would even just supernaturally impart new humility into our hearts. Lord, help us not to be proud. Help us to be humble. God, thank you for the incredible means of grace that counsel and advice is. Lord, let us make good use of that gift, both in our church and in our whole lives. In Jesus' name we pray.